Our Old Testament lesson this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, which should sound a little familiar after our call to worship this morning. It's going to be found on page 1063 in your pew Bibles. This is written by the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Letting people know what's coming. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day and for your word that you have given to us. We pray this morning you would help us to hear it. Help us to hear your word. Help us to understand uh, what it's about, and more importantly, who it's about. God, that as we hear your word read and proclaimed, that we would be made evermore today into the people that you have created us to be, as those who are living now in a relationship with you because of Jesus, and one that goes on forever. Lord, pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Turning then to our New Testament lesson, Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 14. This is part of our reading for this week we are doing in the Read Scripture plan. If you want to come talk about it on Wednesday nights, that's what we'll be talking about. But this is the second half of Romans, where we have uh, already seen in the first half of Romans what all God has done for us in Jesus. And so the second half is now, how do we respond? And that's where we see uh, this come in. Romans 13, verses 8 through 14. Paul writes, Let no debt remain outstanding, except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Well, let's, we've mentioned already, this is Advent 
season. Today is the first Sunday of Advent, and uh, the way that we go through these next four Sundays is looking at the themes of hope and peace and joy and love. And today we're looking at this uh, theme of hope, but, um, but the way we're going to walk through these over the next four weeks is we're going to take a break from our current series in the book of Acts. We'll get back to that in the new year. But for now, we're going to go back to Luke's first book. Luke, who wrote uh, Acts, before he'd written Acts, he wrote the gospel according to Luke. (laughs) And so we're going to go all the way back to the very beginning, the first thing he wrote, and we're going to look at chapter 1 over the next four weeks. We'll break it down into four parts. And uh, the reason the reasons we're doing this is um, I actually heard Eugene Peterson, who uh, died recently. He's the guy who translated uh, the, the Bible and the, the message, if you're familiar with that particular um, rendition. And uh, trying to put the Bible in contemporary words. When, uh, when he died, there was an interview with one of his friends who was a younger pastor he'd mentored, And he said that one of the things that he remembered from Eugene was that he had said that the primary calling of the pastor is just to remind people to be aware of God and respond appropriately. That God is at work and he is doing things, but often we get so distracted and we just miss it. But so to be aware of God and respond appropriately. And what we're going to look at in Luke chapter 1 is four different times in this one chapter, and there are actually more than that, but that's what we're going to look at, is four different times where we have people hearing this message, hearing something, having a message from God, a promise of God, and how do they respond? Some of them do well. Some of them do not. <laughs> and we can learn from all of that. So that's where, we're, uh, that's where we're going to begin today. That's where we're going to be going over the next month, just so you have an idea there. Uh, but we're going to begin right there in the beginning with Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 1 and going on through verse 25 for today. So let's roll through it, and then uh, we'll talk about it. All right, Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 1. He writes, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. In the time of Herod, king of Judah, Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless, because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. 
and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. That's where we're going to stop for today. Although it's hard to stop even there because of the contrast between this one and the next one. So if you're here today, please come next week so you can see the ways that those uh, are just right back to back uh, on purpose. (laughs) So you get to see and sort of compare and contrast all the different situations and responses. But what is the situation here? Now we're going to leave aside um, Luke's introduction to the book where he explains why he's writing this there's a lot in there we don't have time we're just going to look at how he then introduces this whole story and you're thinking if you're going to tell the story of jesus you might want to start with jesus right but he doesn't (laughs) he actually starts not not with jesus and not with john the baptist even but with john the baptist's dad That's where he starts the story. And he says, John the Baptist's dad, you guys got to know about him. If you don't know about him, you're probably not going to understand the whole story. So let me tell you about John the Baptist's dad. He was a, he was a priest. He was in this priestly family. He could trace his ancestry all the way back. Abraham, excuse me. There we go. uh, To Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Jacob's uh, son, Levi, specifically. And then as you keep on going down through the generations, through the family of Aaron, and you keep on going down through the family of Abijah, I mean, it, he knows and he can trace his whole family. He is from the line, not just of Abraham, but of the line of the priests. A family of priests. And actually his wife, also, Elizabeth. Same family. Now, they're not like siblings or anything. But anyway, uh, they're in this priestly line. And so both of them have uh, that sort of inheritance, that sort of heritage, there we go, 
And they are in this priestly family. Okay. Luke is almost setting up this story the same way Jesus sets up the parable of the Good Samaritan. You remember that? Where he talks about the, uh, the traveler who goes down the road and he's beat up and he's on the side of the road and he's like, oh, and then a priest comes by and everybody's like, oh, good. Glad the priest is here because he's going to do something about this. And Jesus is like, and he walks by on the other side. So Luke is setting up this whole story the same way as he tells the story. He starts with John the Baptist's dad because it's the same sort of situation where you have the priest and everybody's like, oh, good. (laughs) There's a priest and his wife is a priest and they're both living well, right with God. This is, this is good. And then he's, he's actually on duty at the temple. This is good. And he's on duty at the temple and he's been chosen by lot as one of the lots of priests to actually go into the temple and to burn the incense. There were too many priests for, for anyone to be responsible for that all the time. And so they'd draw lots and they'd go in and do this. Um, I, think, I think it said like 1,200 priests at the time that could have been doing this. So yeah, chosen by lots. So this is kind of a big deal that he would be there and he would be uh, burning the incense. And this is not all the way in the Holy of Holies. This is the room just outside of that, but it's still pretty close in. And so you see this, this guy who's a priest from priestly family, who's at the temple, who is not only at the temple, he's in the temple, and he is about as close as you can get to God. And yet as it introduces him, it still gives a little bit more background information. And that is that they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. And they were both very old. Okay. Any bells start going off for anybody when you hear that? Does that remind you of anybody else in Scripture before now? If you have been reading all the way through from Genesis and you get to this point, (laughs) you're like, wait a second. God might be up to something here because we've seen this kind of thing before. Now, this doesn't happen all the time. But the times that it has happened, we've been aware of. Where God has taken a couple who's not able to have kids, who's too old to have kids. We've seen situations that are just absolutely impossible. And then we see that for God, all things are possible. And so he takes this situation and, uh, and says, I'm going to do something here. And here, those of us who are reading it that way, who are familiar with stories in Genesis like with Abraham and Sarah. And then we come to this, and we get this description of uh, Zechariah. There's a, like, neurons in our brain should be firing. <laughs> and we should be going, oh, here we go. God's going to do something. Or at least we're ready for it if he does, right? Whether he does or not, we don't know, but we're going to be ready. Zechariah the priest in the temple who fits this pattern we've seen before, and yet he doesn't seem to be ready, does he? Like if you're ever going to give a time an example, if, you, if God were to show up in your life in a real, tangible way where you have an angel of the Lord appearing, standing next to you and saying, I have a message from God for you. If you imagine where that's going to take place, you're probably thinking, well, it's probably going to be like, you know, 
come to church on Sunday or I'm in my quiet time and I'm having, you know, I'm praying and I'm reading the Bible. And, and then in the middle of all that, that's when he shows up, right? And so if there's ever a time that somebody ought to be prepared and ready for that, it should be then. And here Zechariah is at the temple, the priest, and he doesn't seem to be particularly ready. Now we're going to see that it's actually not typically in those moments you most expect. God shows up when it's right to show up. And it's always when people least expect it. What's weird about this is why is this at a time when he should least expect it? If he's there in the temple, he's burning the incense. This is a way of symbolically the prayers going up before God. This is why he's in the temple burning the incense. The people are outside. What are they doing? It's in there. What are they doing? They're praying. They're praying. And so as the people are praying and he's in there burning the incense, it's symbolically the prayers of the people going up before God. If you should expect that God is going to do something, this seems like one of those times where, look, he may or he may not, but this is one of those times, of course, you're going to be ready, you know? And you always think about how would I respond if this situation happened. And you'd always hope, whatever that situation is, that you'd be ready. Well, this is one of those that if God shows up, surely he's going to be ready. And what happens instead is the angel shows up and he's startled. Zechariah is startled and says he was gripped with fear. It's actually fairly typical for the way people respond when angels show up. It is, there is not once in the Bible where an angel shows up and somebody says, oh, how cute. That never happens. People are often terrified when an angel shows up. There are a lot of reasons why that may be the case. I'm not going to get into that. I'm definitely changing this microphone next week. I have one at the ready. I just haven't installed it yet. Okay. (laughs) But the angel shows up. Zechariah is uh, gripped with fear. But the angel does not give him reason to fear, does he? When he starts speaking, what does he say? He says, don't be afraid. And the very next thing he says, oh my goodness. He says, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if an angel shows up and you're like, oh no. And then they say to you, they call you by name and say, don't be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. I mean, what does that do to your soul? (laughs) Right? Oh my goodness. Talk about good news. That is good news. This, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. And you're to call him John. And then it goes through and explains what this son is going to be like. And there's amazing things in there. But just looking at Zechariah with this promise that God not only has heard his prayer, but is going to answer his prayer. And it seems like he should be ready. And if he's not ready, he should at least listen to these words and believe. I mean, it's an angel standing there, right? But how does he respond? Verse 18, Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. In other words... I appreciate it. 
Thanks for coming. Um, glad to know you heard it, but maybe you took the long route getting here, but you're too late. This is something we prayed for a long time ago. This is something that we had our hopes up for a long time ago. But it's too late. It's too late for us. Nothing can be done now. So thanks for rubbing salt in this wound. I'm an old man. My wife is well along in years. And I am not about to get my hopes up on this again. Unless you give me some sign, some proof, some evidence, something I can hang on to. How can I be sure of this? We'll get back to that. In Genesis, we looked last week at the covenant God made with Abraham. But even before that, earlier in chapter 15, starting in verse 4, now, start at verse 5. God takes Abraham outside and says, Look up at the sky and count the stars. I don't know if anybody saw the sky last night. It was gorgeous. There are stars everywhere. And count the stars if indeed you can count them. Then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. Now, keep in mind, Abraham and his wife were well along in years when this promise is made. And Abraham, verse 6, Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He didn't have a whole lot to go on at this point. What he really has to go on is God says this is going to happen. Good enough for me. And God says, yes. (laughs) Yes. So then we go back to Zechariah. This is what we ought to be expecting from the priest in the temple when an angel of the Lord shows up and says, this is what's going to happen. And the next verse, wouldn't it be great if it was, and Zechariah believed the angel. And God said, yes. But instead he says, you got to give me some, you got to give me some proof. You got to give me some evidence. That is really annoying, isn't it? Good night, Irene. Okay. Sorry. But instead, he says, you know, I need, I need proof. And the angel's response to that is fantastic. He just says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. In other words, how do you need any more than what you already have as evidence? You have an angel standing in front of you talking to you. If that's not enough, what is? (laughs) Right? And so then he says, and now you'll be silent and not able to speak until this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time.
There are two things going on here. One is there are consequences for Zechariah not believing. There are consequences for him not believing. He is now not going to be able to speak. But secondly, his unbelief and even his consequences there don't change God's plan. God's plan still moves forward. God still is going to do what he said he was going to do. It's a weird example, but when I was in seventh grade, um, I was not a good student. That changed later in life, much later than should have happened. But anyway, um, in seventh grade, I was really not a good student, and mostly uh, for just not turning in my homework. I might do the homework, I just didn't turn it in, which I thought I was doing the most important part anyway, but whatever. So uh, my mom was not impressed uh, with my way of doing that. And so uh, at one point, I got pretty bad, and she told me, over the next uh, nine weeks, nine-week period back then, over the next nine-week period, if you even get a single zero in any class, you're getting a haircut. Now, this might not be a big deal to you, but as a seventh grader with an excellent mullet, <laughs> take some time to picture it. <laughs> I by no means wanted a haircut. And it was not just you're going to get a trim, it was it's coming off. The mullet is gone. You will have a military haircut. For real. If you get a single zero in a single class. All right. Well, four and a half weeks go by, and she then goes in for the uh, parent-teacher conference, and she comes back from that conference. And uh, before she went, she actually said, you know, is there anything I need to know before I go? No, there's nothing. (laughs) So you guys already know how it went. (laughs) Maybe you've been a seventh grader. Anyway, so... (laughs) She comes home from that conference without a word. I'm standing at the kitchen sink, I think probably trying to clean up the kitchen since I knew I was going to be in trouble. And uh, she doesn't say a word. She just walks right past me, goes, opens the drawer, gets the scissors, comes right back, and in one snip, most of it is gone. And I freaked out. As it turns out, she had met with my English teacher and found out that in that four and a half weeks, I had gotten 16 zeros. Anything I need to know about? No, no. <laughs> I may have set a record. Anyway, point is, <sighs> the point is, I had every reason to believe when she said, if you get a single zero, you're getting a haircut. We went straight from there, by the way, to get the haircut more officially by someone who knew what they were doing. And it was very short. Um, but I should have had enough evidence to believe that when she said this is what's going to happen, that's what was going to happen. But I didn't. I didn't. And so even though uh, she says this is what's going to happen, I'm going through and doing my own thing. With Zechariah, this is the message that God is giving, saying, uh, whether you believe it or not, it's going to happen. <laughs> that is what's going to happen. You are going to have a son, whether you believe it or not. 
Now, if you do believe it, that'll be great. If you don't, there are going to be consequences. But nevertheless, it's going to happen because God says it's going to happen. And that's enough. And so then as we see the rest of, uh, of this section unfold, that's exactly what happens. He comes out and he can't speak. And every time for the next nine months when he opens his mouth to speak, he's reminded. He's reminded of the power of God. I don't even have control over my own mouth anymore, my own voice, my own words. Every time he opens his mouth, he's reminded of the power of God. He's reminded of the promise of God. Every time he goes to speak, he remembers that God is going to do what he said he's going to do. That's how God works. Now, then it says he gets home, and, uh, and after this, his wife became pregnant. She's happy. Now, what does this have to do with us? And the question is kind of the same as with Zechariah. Zechariah, who had a lot of evidence as to how he, why he should have already trusted God, for this answer for him to be, um, how can I be sure of this? And Gabriel's like, I, I'm Gabriel. What, what do you mean, how can you be sure of this? I think it really depends on where his perspective is. If Zechariah is thinking about the promises that God made to Abraham and the way he's fulfilled them there, if he's thinking about the promises that he made all the way through to all his people throughout the Old Testament and the ways that he fulfills his promise every time, if he thinks about the ways in which God has worked in the past and he's seen it in history, in his own family, and then he comes and the angel says, you're going to have a baby, how does he respond? If that's where his focus is, his response is going to be, hallelujah, my prayer has been heard and we're going to have a baby. But if he's forgetting about that, if he's forgetting his history, if he's forgetting how God has worked in the past, and what he's looking at instead is his current situation, we're old. Old people don't have babies. That's not how that works. If he's looking at his own situation in the ways that his hopes have been up before and they've been dashed, if that's what he's looking at, how's he going to respond when the angel says, your prayer has been heard, you're going to have a son? I'll tell you how he's going to respond. He's going to say, how can I be sure of this? Zechariah had every reason to believe. But he didn't. You and I have so much more than Zechariah had then. We have so much more reason to believe, not only that God exists, but that he loves us, that he, has, uh, that he wants us to have a life with him, that he is doing something in our lives, that he is doing something in our lives individually, that he's doing something in our lives together, that he is doing something in us and through us, not only for this community, but for the whole world. The question is, do you believe it? 
or are you still waiting for more evidence? We have a lot of evidence. The question is, is that where we're looking? Or do we have our eyes somewhere else? In a little while, we're going to celebrate one of the things that Jesus has given us to remind us again and again of the evidence we have of God's love, his faithfulness, the reasons we have to trust him and his promises always. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.